Church, I invite you to open up to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to look at verses uh, 2 through chapter 2, verse 3 today, though I want to begin reading in verse 1, and then read through chapter 2, verse 3. And as we read, I would like for you to stand, honoring the reading of God's Word in this passage that we are going to study Together today. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas. God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word to his church today. You can be seated. The title of our message is Creation, God's Good Work. Last week we began a journey through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, but we didn't get very far in that journey last week. We just looked at verse 1. But as we saw, verse 1 reveals a great deal about God. And any time we 
learn and see a great deal about God revealed, we also see a great deal about ourselves and how we ought to live in this world revealed to us. Today we're going to look at the creation of the world as it's described in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 through chapter 2, verse 3. Now I want to begin by telling you, in some ways, this is a very difficult passage to preach. There are several reasons for this, but one reason is that there is no way I could say all that could be said about this passage in one sermon. As we just saw, this is a massive text. There's lots, a lot of things that are going on here. Um, but I've done my best to boil it down to what I think are the main truths we should walk away from this passage hanging on to. But if I have to boil all of those truths down just to one main truth, church, it is this. We should stand in awe of the powerful and good God who is the creator of all. We should stand in awe of the powerful and good God who is the creator of all. A careful reading of this passage will raise many questions in a curious mind. Some of those questions have straightforward answers and some of those questions are debated by scholars of all shapes and sizes. But I want you to know that this passage, just like the rest of God's Word, is not intended to answer every single question that may come to our minds. Scripture even says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. It's a very important verse when it comes to interpreting God's Word. In other words, God has given us enough revelation of himself and his work for us to to leave us without excuse when it comes to submitting our lives in reverence to him and living our lives in obedience to him. We have everything we need to know. At the same time, we may not have everything that our curious minds would like to know. Now, this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, is not an excuse for us to be lazy in our study of Scripture. It is right for us to ask good questions and search the pages of scriptures for God's answers, and yet we must do so with the humility that we can only know what God has intended for us to know. While I do believe there is a great deal we can know and learn about the origins of our world, which I love, by the way, learning and studying and reading about, What we don't want to happen is that we get so bogged down in searching out every minute detail that would answer every little question that comes to our minds that we miss the main point. The minute details are important, but only insofar as they lead us to the main thing. And church, the main thing is that we walk away from the creation account in Genesis in awe of the powerful and good God who is the creator of all. Now, throughout the sermon, you'll hear me refer to the days of creation. Obviously, because this passage speaks about the days of creation. You may or may not know this, but that's a highly debated topic of what the days of creation actually mean. And so I want to very quickly, uh, very quickly give you my viewpoint and a few supporting reasons. I believe that God created the world in six 24-hour days. I know there are some potential difficulties Uh, to holding this view, but they are only difficulties, I believe, if we fail to believe that the supernatural God of this universe created the world supernaturally. Truly, he is able to do that. Let me give you five quick reasons why I interpret Genesis 1 describing six 24-hour days. Number one, the word day in this passage is combined with a number. Every time we see the word day, it's combined with the number. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven. Every time the word day is combined with a number in the Old Testament, it refers to a 24-hour day. Number two, the word is combined, the word day is combined with a reference to evening and morning. Every time we see the word day combined with a reference to evening and morning in Scripture, it refers to a 24-hour day. Number three, the phrase evening and morning in and of itself points to a 24-hour day. Number four, Other places in God's Word state that God created the world in six days. Very clear. States it very clearly. Two places we see that, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. And then in Exodus chapter 31, verse 17, says God created the world in six days. And then number five, fifth reason, God roots our week 
of seven 24-hour days in the fact that he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And that really only makes sense if his creation consisted of six 24-hour days plus another day where he rests. Now, much more could be said about that, but I at least wanted you to know what I mean when I refer to the days of creation. Now, I have seven truths that I want to share with you from this passage. Last time I told you that I had seven truths I wanted to share with you, somebody after the service told me that I scared them when I said that. Don't worry. Uh, we do have a large passage, um, and, uh, and yet uh, we're going to kind of hit these truths uh, fairly briefly, though there are seven of them. Um, and so I, I'm not going to be able to say everything that I really want to say uh, about each of these, but it will at least, I think, help us walk away um, more in love and in awe of our God and perhaps give you something to chew on and uh, provoke further study uh, throughout the rest of the week. Again, we examined verse 1 last week, so I'm not going to say much about that verse today other than just I want to remind you that verse 1 must govern our understanding of the rest of the creation account. God is the creator. He is not a part of creation. He is distinct from creation. And everything in creation owes its existence to the God who is the uncreated creator. God's word picks up with the creation of the world in verse 2 with the earth being, and you can see this in your text, without form and void and darkness being over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. There are plenty of questions and debate about how this verse fits into the creation account. I believe that this formless and void earth, which is described as a watery depth, was created by God, because God is creator of all. Now, we don't have the details of how that happened, but as we saw last week, Scripture testifies in numerous places that everything that is has been created by God. He is the creator of all. And while the details might be fuzzy around verse 2, clearly this formless and void watery depth owes its existence to God. Now, the details God has given us tells us that this was not an out-of-control chaos, but merely an unfinished product at this point in verse 2. God was in perfect control of it all. Notice the end of verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of these waters. The Spirit of God was active in holding together this aspect of His creation. And then the details that we are given... In, in more depth, focus on God turning this formless and void earth, which consists only of a watery depth, in verse 2, into a world that is bursting with light and life. First truth I want you to see is this. God's creative work penetrates darkness and emptiness with light and life. God's creative work penetrates emptiness and darkness with light and life. Darkness becoming light, emptiness becoming life. The creation account begins in verse 2 with darkness and the absence of life. And then throughout the course of six days, God completely transforms this dark and formless void into a habitation of light and life. On day one, God created light. On day two, God created the sky which could hold the lights and certain living creatures. On day three, God gathered the waters under the heavens such that dry land appeared. And now the waters, known as seas, could be filled with life, with living creatures, and the land could be filled with living creatures. On day four, God hung the lights in the sky. On day five, God added life to the sky and the seas in the form of birds and sea creatures. And on day six, God added life to the dry land in the form of land animals, and human beings. From a big picture perspective, God is revealing to us in the creation account that He has penetrated darkness and emptiness with light and life. God magnificently transformed a dark and empty earth into an earth full of light and life. But church, I don't believe that's the only time He has done such a thing. Friends, I believe God has penetrated another form of darkness and emptiness with an even more magnificent form of light and life than we even see in the creation account. The opening lines of John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, bears an incredible resemblance to the opening lines of Genesis chapter 1, 
One of the resemblances is the theme of light and life. Speaking of Jesus, John says in John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What beautiful words. We're going to come back to John chapter 1 in a moment. But for now, just notice that our God is a God of light and life. He penetrates darkness and emptiness with light and life. He did that in the beginning of creation, and He still is doing that today. You say, how do we see that? How do we see God doing that today? Well, church, He penetrates hearts which are full of emptiness and dark with sin with the light and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, today, if you've been trying to fill the emptiness of your heart with with all sorts of things which never really satisfy, if you've been wrestling with the reality of how dark your heart is with sin, I want you to know that the God who created the world, the God who created you, is so powerful and He's so good that He is able to penetrate the emptiness and the darkness of your heart and life with light and life. An eternal light and an eternal life. He does so through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He does so in the hearts of all who believe in Jesus. God's creative work penetrates darkness and emptiness with light and life. Number two, number two, God's creative work portrays the power of His Word. God's creative work portrays the power of His Word. Church, I could just camp out here for the rest of the day. All right, we might have to stop and take a few breaks along the way, but I could, I could. We, we, can't, we can't say everything we could say about this, but I want you to notice this. There are many similarities we see in the way each day of creation is described. But one of the most noticeable similarities between each day of creation is that they all begin with God speaking. They all begin with God speaking. It's very easy to see that one of the aspects of the creation account that God, remember this is His Word, this is the way He is describing His creation to us, He is highlighting for us the role that His Word plays in creation. Each day of creation begins with the words, and God said. And then God also speaks at other times during these days. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered into one place. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our life. But church, he didn't just say those things. We say a lot of things. We say a lot of things. There's a a big difference between the words that we say and the words that God says. You see, God didn't just say these things. Everything that God said actually happened. Six times we see these words repeated. And it was so. And it was so. This emphasizes the effectiveness of of God's word. Church, God's word is powerfully effective in bringing about his desired end. He is not a God who hopes and wishes that something will happen and then speaks hoping and wishing that it will happen. He's a God who speaks and it is so. God said it this way through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 11. One of my favorite, favorite passages in all of God's word. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish what I shall propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful and can be trusted. It was effective in creation and it is effective today. Church, can we just take a moment and just pause and wrap our minds around this sheer power of God who 
speaks things into existence. Speaks things into existence. Remember last week we talked about the, the greatest distinction in all of life is the distinction between God and His creation. No, no one else in creation, nothing else in creation can speak things into existence. He can speak things into existence and not just simple things. He's spoken the world into existence. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Church, God's word is powerful. The writer of Hebrews also says this about the word of God. For the, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Church, with His Word, God created the world, and with His Word, God exposes the darkness of our hearts. But there's at least one more thing God does with His Word that, I, that I've got to mention. Church, God saves sinful people from their sin through his word. Not just through a spoken word, though, but through his word made flesh. A moment ago, I told you that the opening to John's gospel is incredibly similar to Genesis chapter one. And I read verses four and five speaking about light and life. Well, I want to back up and I want to read you the first three verses of John chapter one. In the beginning, now I'm reading from John, not Genesis, though it sounds a lot like Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And now I'm going to skip to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The powerful Word of God through whom the world was made is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was with God in the beginning and He is God. He was God, is God, will always be God. But God did not only create the world through His Son, He brings salvation to the world through His Son. See, God not only brought life into the world through His creative powers in the beginning, but He brings new life to sinners through his powerful working of His Son dying for our sins upon the cross. This Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Verses 12-13 through 13 of John chapter 1 says of this Word made flesh, who is light and life, says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Notice the new creation here. Who were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John is setting up what he's going to say in the conversation, what he's going to record in the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that we must be born again. Who has the power to make us born again, church? The same God who birthed the earth in the beginning. He does so through His Son, just like He did so through His Son in the beginning. He does so in our hearts today through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. same God who created the world by His Word saves all who believe in the Word made flesh. As effective as His Word was in the beginning, so effective is it today in the life of everyone who will believe in Jesus. And so I plead with you, if you're lost in your sin today, please turn to faith in Jesus. He alone died on the cross and He alone rose up from the grave. He died to, to pay the price for your sin and He rose up to conquer sin and Satan and death for you. To give you eternal life, to secure your eternal life. God's Word is powerfully effective to give new life to you today. If you ask God to forgive you and rescue you through believing in Jesus, God's Word guarantees this. It will be so. End of story. God's creative work portrays the power of His Word. Number three, God's creative work promotes order over chaos. God's creative work promotes order over chaos. Now, it's hard to point to just like one particular verse or phrase in this passage which teaches this truth. I think it's something that we learn as we just read the whole account. As we look at it kind of zoomed out. 
As we look at the, the creation account as a whole, there's nothing chaotic about God's process of creation. Nothing. There's no chaos that comes as a result of His completed creation. It's obvious that God was not flying by the seat of His pants, so to speak. He wasn't just kind of making it up as He went. Kind of doing one thing and then it kind of turns out not how it's supposed to be. Well, if I'm going to have to redo that or I have to change up my, my process there. No, 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 no. There was a definite plan and purpose in the way God created. For instance, God didn't fill the earth with inhabitants until he made the earth habitable. Here's what I mean. He didn't make the lights and the birds for the sky until after he made the sky. He didn't make the sea creatures until after he made the seas. He didn't create the land animals and the humans until after he had a land for them to live upon. There was order in the process. Also, we see that God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh, thus establishing a very orderly seven-day week made up of 24-hour days that serves as the basis for us having an orderly calendar today. Then on day four, God set the sun and the moon and the sky in order to help us know when a day begins and when a day ends. We're not scratching our heads wondering that. There's not chaos trying to figure out when tomorrow begins and when it ends and when the next day will begin and when that day ends. In other words, these lights he set in the sky provide order to our lives. And when creation is all said and done, what we see is an orderly not chaotic universe. It's a universe which can be observed and studied and understood and predicted at least as much as human ability will allow. And this teaches us something about God. He is a God of order. He is a God of order, not a God of confusion. Not a God of chaos. And this impacts how we live. I wish we had time to go into every way this impacts how we live. Let me let me just give you one that Scripture gives us. Paul, turn to the New Testament, Paul instructed the Corinthian church to conduct their gatherings, their church gatherings, their worship services, if you want to put it that way. Um, he, he, he instructs them to conduct those gather, gatherings with order. In fact, he chastises them for not conducting those uh, gatherings with order. That they were doing some things that were creating disorder in, in the service. And he's Paul chastises them and says, no, your, your services, your church gatherings need to be orderly. Now, what, what's he root that in? Well, he roots it in the fact that God is a God of order. In that passage, when he's instructing the church to conduct their gatherings orderly, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's what he says. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. We learn that all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. This is, this, this is one thing I love, especially when we think about the Old Testament. Sometimes we think that the Old Testament is not relevant for us today, or we don't need to study it, or it's just too hard to understand. All we need is New Testament. No, that's not, that's not true. It's, it's the Word of God. I can't get off on that tangent, but, but just notice even here, God's instructions for a church service trace their roots all the way back to the way in which God created the world. It's awesome. It's awesome. God's creative work promotes order over chaos. I want to camp out there, but we've got to keep rolling. We've got to keep rolling. Truth number four. Truth number four. God's creative work paints a picture of unity and diversity. Church, God's creative work paints a picture of unity in diversity. One of the striking features about God's creation, we see it when we look at the text which describes His creation, and we can just look at creation and see this. The creation that we see around us lines up with the creation as described in God's Word. One of the striking features is that it is free of strife. It is free of disharmony. It is free of fighting and quarreling. 
We don't see that, which, which, which really stands out when we study all of Scripture. Because just a couple of chapters later, the world is going to all of a sudden be filled with disharmony. And as we study through the book of Genesis, we're going to see example after example after example till we're so tired of seeing examples of disharmony and fighting and quarreling in God's creation. But it was not so from the beginning. You see, in God's creation, there is perfect peace and harmony among God's creation. We don't see any of that. In light of the rest of the Bible, chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis just scream unity. Unity among all of God's creation. But this harmony, this unity of creation is not a result of everything being the same. This is what's so awesome. This unity, this this harmony is not a result of everything being the same. In fact, we see the opposite of sameness here in God's creation. What we see is incredible diversity. God's world has both times of light and times of darkness. God's world has both land and it has seas. God's world has both plants yielding seed and Fruit trees bearing fruit. And then various kinds of these plants in each category. God's world, as we see here described in Genesis chapter 1, has different types of lights in the sky. There's the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And there are stars. God's world has sea creatures and birds and land animals. And then there are various kinds of each of these under each of those three categories. God's world has humans who come in two types, male and female. And God created the living creatures with DNA such that they could mutate into an enormous variety of creatures that we see today. God God created humans with DNA such that they could eventually have all sorts of colors of skin and all all sorts of facial features and all sorts of colors of hair and, and all sorts of eye colors and various personalities. I mean, God created all of that. I mean, all of what we see today was there in the beginning. It was there in the beginning. God created it all. It's great diversity. And when we remember that God created all things for His glory, and that this creation existed initially in perfect unity, then we come to understand that God is glorified, God is glorified by both diversity and unity, and the two are not mutually exclusive. Here's what I mean by that. God loves unity, and God loves diversity, and He loves both at the same time. He loves unity in diversity. Unfortunately, Because of sin, we have replaced unity with quarreling, selfish ambition, strife, discord. And we have replaced diversity with discrimination, prejudices, favoritism, all of which God's word condemns. But, church, praise God. Praise God that the blood of Jesus not only reconciles us back to God, but it also reconciles us to one another. Go read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. You see, the church, the redeemed people of God, we get this great great opportunity to put on display for our world what God's creation in the beginning put on display. Unity is in diversity we can and should as a church strive to be a reflection of god's original creation which was teeming with diversity and unity but we're not merely to reflect god's past creation in this as we pursue unity and diversity we get the great privilege of foreshadowing god's coming new creation where as the prophet isaiah said the wolf shall lie down with the lamb diversity and yet unity And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. 
And we get to foreshadow this new heavens and new earth where people from all tribes and peoples and languages will stand before the throne and before the Lamb. And they will, they will together, the text says, they will cry out, salvation belongs to our God. I love that. There's this great, isn't that word, word our? This is a great picture of unity and diversity of people from all over the globe are saying salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Church, God loves unity and God loves diversity and He loves unity in diversity and so should we. God's creative work paints a picture of unity and diversity. Truth number five. Truth number five. God's creative work privileges humanity over the rest of creation. God's creative work privileges humanity over the rest of creation. Now, this extremely important truth flies right in the face of the modern evolutionary explanation of the origin of the universe. You see, if humanity is merely the next link in a chain of an evolutionary process whereby matter moves from the simple to the complex, then we are at the end of the day no different when it comes to our value and position than the rest of creation. We might be more complex creatures, but we are no more valuable. According to that line of thinking and that interpretation of the origins of the universe, a flower has just as much right to rights as we do. But friends, that is not what God's Word teaches. God's Word teaches us that God has created humanity in such a way that we have a privileged value when compared to the rest of creation and a privileged position over the rest of God's creation. The creation of humanity is such an important part of God's creation that, that I really want to devote an entire sermon to this point. And so, this is what we're going to spend our time talking about next week, Lord willing. But I do want to give you three quick reasons from the text to support this claim that I've given you that humanity is privileged over the rest of creation. A lot more that we can say and we're going to say next week. First, we see humanity's privileged position in the literary structure of this passage. For instance, the description of day six is by far the longest when compared to the first five days. It's a literary technique to to emphasize a certain point. Well, the point you want to emphasize, you spend more time on. And very clearly, uh, God, God's creation account spends more time on day six, describing day six, than any other of the days. And within day six, where land animals and humans are created, God spends more time describing the creation of humans than he does the, the, uh, the creation of land animals. Another thing, another reason we can say that humanity has a privileged position is that humanity alone, not any other parts of creation, but only humanity is created in the image of God. So I'm going to say about that. Leave it till next week. In the image of God. No other part of creation is said to be created in the image of God. And then third, only humanity is given the position and responsibility of having dominion over, the text says, every living thing that moves on the earth. Structure of the passage, humanity is privileged. The, 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 the fact that God creates humanity in his own image, we have a privileged position. And the fact that God has placed humanity in dominion over his creation reveals that we have a privileged position. For now, just know that we are God's special creation. Humanity is uniquely distinct from the rest of God's creation. And this truth has far, far reaching implications for life today. God's creative work privileges humanity over the rest of creation. Truth number six God's creative work points to his complete goodness. God's creative work points to His complete goodness. All throughout the creation account in Genesis 1, God evaluates what He has made. This is awesome. God is constantly evaluating what He makes as He makes it. God cares about whether what He makes is good or whether it's not good. 
He evaluates it. We see the word good repeated seven times in this passage. His evaluation of his creation is that it is good. Six times the text says that God saw what he had made and that it was good. And then in chapter 1, verse 31, we see that at the end of day six, God, quote, saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Everything God made was very good. God did not mess up at all. Not one mistake. Not any evil in His creation of the heavens and the earth. Everything that He saw when He looked at the heavens and the earth that He had made, He said, it is good. I have done a good job. Church, this leads us to worship this God. There there are many things that we could learn from this truth. But the main thing is this. The complete goodness of creation is simply a reflection of the complete goodness of of God. Creation is good, church, because God is good. An evil God could not create a creation that was completely good, but a completely good God can and will create a creation that is completely good. And because God is good and is obviously pleased with what is good, then we ought to pursue that which is good in God's sight in our lives. And yet we know that we don't. We know that our lives are not completely good. And this means, this means that the powerful God of creation should punish us for rejecting His goodness and in place filling this world with our sinfulness. The goodness of God, in fact, would demand, the righteousness of God would demand that He punish us. But church, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is that instead of powerfully punishing us, God has chosen to powerfully rescue us from our badness, if I could say it that way, to contrast it with God's goodness. And when God powerfully saves us, He fills us with the power of His Holy Spirit so that then our lives will be filled with the good deeds which Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God powerfully rescues us from our sin and then God powerfully pushes sin out of our lives and pushes holiness into our lives. That is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, God powerfully created a good world and then many years later, He powerfully displayed His goodness through sacrificing His Son on the cross so that we who don't deserve to be rescued, could be rescued from our lack of goodness and and then go on to live lives of faith in the God who is both powerful and good. God's creative work produces a completely good creation. And then truth number seven. Truth number seven for us today. Church, God's creative work produces a finished creation. God's creative work produces a finished creation. Even though our Bibles have a chapter division at the end of the sixth day, we should not view the creation account as being over until we read about day seven. Chapter two, verses one through three. Probably would have been better if our chapter division was after verse three of what is our chapter two. Like with the rest of creation, there is a lot that could be said about day number seven. But today I mainly want you to notice the reason that on day 7, the text says that God rested. We see that very clearly. God rested on day 7. What did He do on day 7? He rested. Why did He rest? It was because He was finished. It wasn't because He was tired. It was because He was finished. He was finished. The rest of God is not inactivity of God. It's not God stopping doing everything that He does. That's not what this rest is. Scripture teaches us that God didn't create the world and then step back and let things just happen. In fact, Scripture teaches the opposite. 
Scripture teaches us that God is the one who is constantly holding all creation together. If God were to remove his active hand for a second, there would be no more creation. He's holding all that he made together every second of every day. Obviously, he was not inactive on day seven, just as he has not been inactive even for a second since he created the world. God is always actively sustaining and watching over his creation. So what did he rest from? Well, chapter 2, verse 2 specifically states that God rested, quote, from all his work that he had done. That's pointing back to his work of creation, that specific work of creating. In other words, God rested from that work of creating the world. Now, why could he rest? Why could he then stop that creating work and rest? It is because he was finished. Two times in these verses we are told that God was finished. Friends, God is a God who finishes what he starts. You may not finish everything you start. You may have many unfinished projects sitting or lying around your house, many unfinished ideas in your head, but God is a God who finishes what he starts. That is a good truth for us to grab hold of today. When God sets out to do something, he sees it through to completion. We see this truth about God on full display throughout the book of Genesis. We see it on display throughout all of the Bible. We see it on, th- on display throughout the history of the church. Listen, despite countless attempts throughout history by Satan and Satan's children to overthrow the good work of God in keeping his promise to send a man born of woman to deliver us from sin, God has always worked in such a way to finish what he started. And I can't help, church, but think that as the Son of God, who we've already seen is there in creation, He is the Word through whom all things have been created. I cannot help but think that as the Son of God, through whom all things were created, finished His work of creation, that He was looking ahead to that afternoon outside the city of Jerusalem where He would cry out while hanging from a tree that He had created. It is Finished. And what was finished on that day? What was finished in that moment? What was finished was the payment for our sin. What was finished was God's plan from before the foundations of the earth to sacrifice His Son on our behalf. What was finished was redemption, whereby God's privileged creation, who had rejected their Creator, could become new creations in Christ And friends, just as God did not leave His good work of creation unfinished, God did not leave His good work of salvation for you and for me unfinished. And just as God rested as proof that He had finished His work of creation, so Jesus, so Jesus resurrected and ascended to the Father, set down, Scripture says, to rest as proof that He had finished what He came to accomplish, and that is working salvation for all who will believe in Him. And the good news, church, for you and me, is that all who depend upon Jesus for salvation get the privilege of joining Him in this eternal rest, which Scripture calls eternal life. And until that day, and until that day, when we rest with our Savior in glory, when we are with Him forever, Until that day, church, we live with confidence in our salvation. Not questioning whether I'm saved today or saved tomorrow or was saved yesterday, but not today. We don't have to question that. For as the Apostle Paul said to the Philippians, I am sure of this, Paul said. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Church, God is a God who finishes what he starts. And I wonder today, I wonder today if you're standing in awe of the powerful and good God of creation. I wonder today if you have believed in the Son of God who powerfully saves all who believe in His good sacrifice on our behalf. I wonder today if you're depending upon the goodness of God displayed on the cross of Christ to deliver you from your sin. Are you depending upon someone or something else, even your own works. Church, God has finished your work of salvation. And so rest in that. That is where true rest is found. That is the only place that rest is found. It's the only way that you can lay your head down on your pillow at night 
and not be concerned or worried with whether or not you wake up the next morning. God has finished your work of salvation. He finishes what He starts. And I want you to be in on that. I want you to enjoy that kind of rest where you know that you know that you know that you have eternal life and eternal rest with God. Friend, the same God who spoke creation into existence is speaking to us today through His Word, calling sinners to faith in Jesus. So just like we read at the beginning of this service from Psalm chapter 95, do not harden your hearts if today the Lord is speaking to you. Non-Christian, will you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus today? Christian, Will you not just stand in awe today, but will you live in reverent, obedient awe every day? The God who created all. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you work in our hearts as I believe you have already been working in our hearts throughout this service. Father, from the moment we came in preparing our hearts to hear from Your Word and then, Father, working in our hearts through the power of Your Word. Father, then now, Lord, I pray that You would continue to powerfully work in our hearts as we respond to Your Word. Lord, if there's someone here today who needs to turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and faith in Him and what He has done on the cross, Lord, I pray that even right now as I'm praying, Lord, they would confess their sin to You. And they would, they would ask, Lord, Lord, they would plead upon Your mercy that You would rescue them, not because they are worthy of it, but because, God, You have finished the work of salvation for them through the death and resurrection of Your Son. Father, then as we join our voices together, God, may we worship. Worship. Father, not just with words, but with hearts overflowing with gratitude. Father, with with hearts standing in awe of You and how powerful and good You are. Lord, together as different people, but united by the Gospel of Jesus Christ, would we lift one voice of worship to You today. Father, would Christ, the Word from the beginning, the Word made flesh, God, would He be exalted as we sing songs of praise to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.